with it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. This sound like theme music, motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing, check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophy. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Let me get the usual reminders out of the way first. As I mentioned on last week's podcast, Jamel Hill is Unbothered is up for another NAACP Image Award. It's determined by fan votes. So make sure you go to vote.naacpimageawards.net. Scroll to the podcast section. Click on the Outstanding Arts and Entertainment category and vote for your girl. Real easy. You also can go to Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Twitter and Instagram accounts, and you'll see the information on how to vote there as well. And do not forget to support the Unbothered Network. Listen to the first two podcasts that we've launched on the network, The Black Girl Bravado and Sanctified. With your support, next year, all of us will be nominated for NAACP Image Awards. And now on to the word of the week, which is humility. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Yeah. It seemed like a great story. NFL Hall of Famer Ed Reed being hired by Bethune Cookman University as its head football coach. After Deion Sanders had success at Jackson State before moving on to Colorado, people were thinking something similar was about to happen at historically black BCU. But Ed Reed's time at Bethune Cookman was over before it started. Literally, while Ed Reed's contract was being sorted out, he was on campus one day and decided to go live on Instagram to complain about the conditions. We're going to ride through the fence that these things fix the fence. We about to ride through this fence. This ain't even the football side. And y'all talking about Madden at my uncle prime. Y'all mad at Dion, mad at prime. This shit is every HBCU. Deion Sanders also was outspoken about some of the conditions at Jackson State, some of which he helped to alleviate with his success. Dion brought in a lot of corporate money and developed some key partnerships that helped Jackson State upgrade its facilities. It did not help matters that Jackson, Mississippi, where Jackson State is, was in the middle of one of the worst water crises that you will hear about in history that also had a significant impact on some of the conditions that Dion experienced. Now, the difference is that Dion Sanders didn't come out the gate dragging the university and certainly not before he'd actually signed a contract. Ed Reed went to the University of Miami, a private school that has about 17,000 students. The school sports teams reportedly generated about 116 million in revenue last year. When Reed played at Miami, it was one of the most successful programs in the country and one of the biggest brands in all of sports. So he's speaking from a very privileged position of being accustomed to top notch coaches, training staffs, facilities, national media coverage, sold out stadiums. By comparison, Bethune Cookman's entire athletic budget is 15 million dollars and they have 4000 students. They do not have the money or resources to come remotely close to having anything that resembles what Ed Reed experienced at Miami. As someone who also attended a PWI or predominantly white institution, 
I'm uncomfortable with how so many of us who attended PWIs feel completely comfortable dragging HBCUs when most of us don't know the history of these colleges and universities and have such little understanding of the challenges and impact institutional racism has had on these schools. We are quick to come into the scene and say mismanagement and where's the money going and raising all sorts of questions. And a lot of us never even set foot on a HBCU campus. Bethune-Cookman has gone through some major challenges. The school has not recovered from being hit by a hurricane a few months ago. That would be Hurricane Ian. Now, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Bethune does have some conditions that need addressing and are unacceptable. On social media, BCU students posted pictures that show mold in their dorms. Players on the football team have been sharing helmets. Some students also complained about rats and crappy cafeteria food. The good thing is that what happened with Reed inspired the students to be more vocal about their conditions. About 300 students protested at the school and called for the board of trustees to resign. Political infighting aside, we just need to be more cognizant of how it's such a different landscape for HBCUs. For example, Tennessee has two land grant institutions, University of Tennessee and Tennessee State, which is an HBCU. For decades, state officials decided to give University of Tennessee 75 percent of the federal money they were allowed for their land grant institutions. Tennessee State has been shorted over the last several decades by $544 million. In Maryland, the state reached a $577 million settlement that ended a 15-year lawsuit by the four HBCUs, Bowie State, Coppin State, Morgan State, and University of Maryland Eastern Shore. Imagine what all these universities could have accomplished had they just been properly funded. While that might not necessarily be the case at Bethune-Cookman, it's disheartening that so much anti-blackness is directed at HBCUs and almost all of it is coming from our own people. PWIs have scandals and mismanagement issues all the time, but we act like mismanagement and political infighting is something that is germane to our people. It reminds me of how hard we can be on black businesses. If we had a bad experience at a black business, we're quick to say, and see, that's why I don't fuck with black businesses, or that's why I don't do business with black people. If we have a bad experience with white people, that doesn't stop us from going to other white establishments or supporting other white businesses or prevent us from dealing with white people, period. My other issue with Ed Reed is that he came off like he is looking down his nose at Bethune, forgetting that they were the ones who were giving him a chance to be a head coach at the college level, an opportunity he definitely wasn't going to get at a PWI. It was the lack of humility for me, the word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. My guest today has been on the scene for decades and become beloved because of her legendary roles on two incredible shows, with one of those shows holding the special distinction of being picked up on three different networks. It is the show that fans simply refuse to let go of. But as steady as her career has been, perhaps her biggest achievement was creating a place for artists that has faithfully served the Los Angeles community since 1997. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. You know her as Tasha Mack, the fabulous Wendy Raquel Robinson. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wendy, I feel like I need to ask you the most obvious question as we start this podcast. And that is, is Glorilla going to play your younger self in the Wendy Raquel Robinson movie? I just I just want to get that out the way. <laughs> you know what's so funny? Well, one, I'm going to be like Whoopi Goldberg. I don't want any unauthorized uh, biopics about me uh, before, during and after my uh, existence on this planet. But you know what? Everybody brings up the Glorilla. We have to do something. And I, we've been DMing each other and then actually acting now we're texting each other. And um, it's like the sky is the limit. You know what I mean? It really is. I see us more or less doing something together. Yes. Playing me or me playing her. That's that's a whole lot of energy, you know. But I think together combined, that'd be that'd be a hell of a a show, a movie, or um, a sketch, or even an album. I'm, I'm open to that. Or a podcast. Who knows? Okay. But something must happen with that. Absolutely. I mean, the, the resemblance between you two is so uncanny. <laughs> oh, the hair, the side swoop, the this, but you know, she changes her hair too. And then she went blonde and Tasha's blonde. I'm like, what is happening, girl? But, oh, and I looked it up. Our birthdays are like Two days apart. Wow, you're a Leo. Yeah, how you know? You a Leo? I am not, but um, you know, one, I do my research, and two, my husband's a Leo. Oh, what's your sign? Uh, I'm a Sagittarius, so my birthday just passed. Oh, fire and fire, yeah. Fire and fire, correct. Oh, good for you, yeah. <laughs> so when is your birthday? I'm July 25th. Okay, you're the July Leo. Okay, got you. All right, yeah, he's an August one. Oh, oh, so girl, you got you an Obama man, honey. Yeah, they strong, girl. They strong. I do. I do have a, a Obama Leo. Yeah, he's August 6th. So. <laughs> I bet. I bet. I'm a big teddy bear. I just roar loudly, but I'm a little kitty cat. Oh, well, <laughs> I, well I, we have, we loved your roar for quite a bit of time. Your extensive career has been really amazing to watch and you've done, created so much, done so much, given so much back to your community, which I definitely want to get into your organization, which has been doing work now for decades. Uh, but first, I'm going to ask you a question. I ask every guest who appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And that is, when did you become unbothered? You know, I think it's a when it, it's a becoming thing for me, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, when did I become unbothered or as I am unfolding and, you know, the more I learn, the more I grow, I am becoming unbothered. Uh, I, I have a low tolerance for BS completely. You know, I don't have the capacity in my life to. Uh, it's so funny. I was just talking about this late last night to one of my mentees, because, you know, for years I've always been 
non-confrontational. And for some people that's really, you know, it bothers them. It's like, but I have my point and I want to get it out and this, that, and the other. And it's like, okay, I understand that. But right now I'm, I'm juggling a business. I got a career. I got my personal life. I got this, I got that. I got, I have a zero tolerance for bullshit. I got to be real. It's like, I pick and choose the things that I let come into my space. I protect my energy. So when did I become unbothered? I'm going to say when I became a homeowner and a businesswoman, and that's ooh, about a good 25 years ago where I just don't have the capacity to, you know, sit back in. I'd love a good, strong debate, but okay. And what is the problem that we are solving right here? That's that major Leo energy right there. <laughs> I'm glad that you brought up your school, your organization, the Amazing Grace Conservatory, 25 years and counting. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. I think this is an amazing organization you started. It's a nonprofit where you train and develop uh, emerging young artists uh, from marginalized communities. This is over two decades old. And as you, you know, the teeth of your career as you're into that, you decide to start this nonprofit to help others. What was it that inspired you to create this space for young performers? When I got into this business, number one, it, it's a difficult business to begin with. But I graduated from Howard. And one of the things that Howard instilled in me was, you know, you're not an anomaly. You're not just out here on your own. You know, there is a responsibility to do more, to give more, to provide more. And so I was even teaching uh, children's theater while I was still at Howard University. It was always my passion, you know, it, my fun. And I feel like I was walking in my purpose. So I moved back to L.A., where I'm born and raised. And girl, I couldn't get a job. I couldn't get an agent. I couldn't get a return page. You know, at the time there were pagers. And I really became disenchanted with the industry, not disgruntled, but very disenchanted. And um, I started teaching. I started teaching dance again, acting, you know, to children at Marla Gibbs Crossroads Arts Academy, which was right here in LA. And uh, she saw me. She saw my talent, my gift, my worth and all of that. And then she closed her door. So I only taught there for like maybe two months and she shut down. And, sh and there were all these incredible students that I was working with. And she was like, I can't do it anymore. And I was like, well, I can. So she gave us the blessing and she passed the baton on to myself and my best friend, Tracy Lamar Coley. He's since passed, but he was a Morehouse man. I'm a Howard girl. We put our heads and hearts together and developed a curriculum and we found an incredible space and had no idea, you know, that it was going to turn into what it is today. But just two passionate artists that just wanted to Wow. How do I even say it? It's, it's such a hard thing. It's like, why did you do this? It's like I did it as a um, as a as, as a young struggling artist to just provide a platform for other people to have a space that was safe and just allow them to discover and explore everything that they wanted to be. Unbeknownst to me, here we are, you know, over 25 years later, and it has become I want to say one of the greatest things that I've ever done in my life. It's pretty freaking powerful to put into words, but it's my purpose. It's my passion. Actually, I like to say a lot of times, you know, low key, I do the things that I do in Hollywood to sustain me and the school and to make it greater. So it's kind of that type of pipeline. The artists that are coming out of there, it's, you know how you always say your seeds shall exceed you. 
And they really have. You know, we just honored Issa Rae uh, as our distinguished alumni. And um, even me playing her mom on Insecure was such a full circle inside track. You know what I mean? Ashton Sanders, I just saw him my entire, we took the village to go see him. He's in, uh, I want to dance with somebody playing Bobby Brown, you know, and we're just having those full circle moments of just joy. And I mean, so it was for a lot of reasons to answer that. I think it helped my sanity. You know, I'm not jaded. You know, it's a business where you can become very jaded, bitter, you know, depressed, this, that, and the other. And it's like, I am a kid in a candy shop. I still feel like I'm doing plays in my backyard when I was eight years old, you know, so it sustains me on that level. So I'm just so thankful for it. You mentioned Issa Rae and she was one of the alums that you have. I was going to ask you about. And maybe you didn't project this specifically, that she would become this power broker in Hollywood. But obviously you may have seen something. So what was a young Issa Rae like in your program? You know, what's so interesting. I call her one of the sponges. And it kind of reminds me of that. She was Joisa. I don't even really remember her. She sat in the back. She was quiet. She absorbed. And, you know, that sponge is now wrung out. You know, that's why I call it the sponge, you know. But she was quiet. She was cerebral, wasn't in the front, even in her speech when she, um, you know, this this past month when she was honored, she was like, I wasn't in the dances because she couldn't dance. I wasn't, you know, starring in the roles. She couldn't act. But she was a sponge that just kind of took it all in and used uh, Amazing Grace Conservatory as her community. And the root of community for me is that common unity, because now, you know, she's employing half of the other alumni. They have a strong network. They all work together. When I was on the set, it was like, you know, oh, my God, there's Christian, there's this, there's that, you know, all of the AGC alum. So she was a very nondescript, you know, student. So the lesson in that is like, don't sleep on anybody, any of my students, you know, because some are cerebral, some are outspoken. But then there are those others that are just like really just taking it all in and using it you know, for the betterment. I think it's pretty amazing that you started this at a time where, you know, your career wasn't where you wanted it to be. Uh, Because often people, if their own life isn't going well professionally or personally, they are unable to give when they're, you know what I'm saying? A lot of times people are like that. And I remember uh, my former manager told me a long time ago, he said, when you hit a low moment in your career, your professional life or personal life, go out and bless somebody else. And I never forgot that he told me that. And because then you know it's coming from the heart because you had nothing to gain from it. Anything, you try to keep your boat afloat. Right, that part. Wow, but that's powerful. So whenever things are at a low point for you in your personal, professional, and even your relational life, go out and bless somebody. Go out and bless somebody. That's what it was and still is to this day, you know? And there are highs and lows with that. But that's a powerful statement. Yeah, there's truth in that. So I want to ask you at that point where, as you said, you were a struggling actor, trying to figure out how to make this career work. Were you ever close to giving up? Were you ever close to quitting? I don't want to say I was close to quitting because, girl, I've been doing it since I was eight years old. You know what I mean? Just for me, not professionally, you know, but doing theater, doing plays in my backyard, doing, you know, just acting. And so it it wasn't like I was quitting, but it was a pivot and a shift of was it TV and film? Was was that for me? You know, so I went on tour. I did plays. I did. Oh, my goodness. I did every Chitlin Circuit stage play. You know, I was as close to Broadway as, you know, off Broadway as, as I could possibly be. But I did that for years. 
So it kept me passionate. It kept me sane. It kept me in the community of what I wanted to do. I was even ushering at professional theaters just so I could see the plays and just be saturated in that. So I didn't want to take like a regular, you know, a nine to five or to waitress or anything like that. Because, you know, when you get off that path, you know, next thing you know, 10, 15 years have gone by and you're not really pouring back in. So I tried to stay as close to that world as possible. And it kept me engaged and it kept me passionate. You know, and I think that's so important for the young people that are out there. You know, if this is what you want to do, then do it. So you've been doing this since, as you just put it, since you were eight years old. What was it about acting that made you fall in love with this, where you knew this is the only thing I want to do? I was in the fourth grade and I was one of those hyperactive kids, you know, and I used to get in trouble all the time. And I got sent to one of my counselors uh, back then, you know, and I was identified as gifted, but now they call it, you know, ADHD, whatever, you know. She told my parents to um, put me in something that would channel all of that energy. And I discovered the arts. And I was graduating high school and, you know, one of the college counselors came and, you know, was like, well, what is it that you, you want to do? And it was like, well, I, I want to act. I want to dance. I want to, I, I wish I could sing, but, <laughs> and it was like, well, then do it. And looked up the best colleges that were out there. And I looked at all of the alumni that had come out of Howard and I was just, so, you know, and all from Roxy Roker to Felicia Rashad to Debbie Allen to, you know, everybody. I was like, wow, this is this is it. So I did that. I became an expert in terms of knowing more than just acting. I wanted to know the entire world, you know, from lights to sound to hair to makeup to costume to, the, you know, everything, you know, so that I could just be equipped with that. I guess I knew because there was nothing else I wanted to do, you know, and I wanted to just delve into that world and immerse myself in it as deeply as possible. I know a number of uh, Howard University grads. You graduated cum laude. Work, darling. Thank you for doing the work. Listen, to me, the most respectful thing I can do as an interviewer is to make sure that not only do I know the person I'm talking about, but if I don't know the intricacies as much as I can through research of your life, then I feel like I'm being disrespectful to you because you're coming prepared. So it's my job to also come prepared. You went to Howard and I know so many bisons out there. You know, what do y'all call yourselves? The real HU? Is that right? (laughs) Yes. Yes, correct. Um, So I know how proud you are are of your university. I did not go to an HBCU. I went to a PWI. But nevertheless, the Howard experience is so unique and specific. So how did Howard shape your view of the world? How did it mold you exactly? You know, I want to say it's a blessing and a curse because when I came out of Howard, it was like it inflated my belief, not only in myself, but in the fact that I can do anything. When when I I get out of here, are you kidding me? The world is mine. You know, I'm a strong, you know, I I am prepared and I and I was. I was, you know, as good as it gets, you know, as far as I was concerned. And it gave me the wherewithal to know and to believe not only in myself, but in the culture. And, you know, uh, wow, it gave me so much power that to a point where when I say the curse of it all was like, okay, well, how come I I ain't getting these calls? How come I'm not getting these? I don't understand. You know, I'm going to walk into these agencies and this is how it's supposed to be because, you know, I'm coming out of Howard. I'm cum laude, you know, and it was the highest of highs and to almost the lowest of lows. It prepared me in a way to pivot 
to navigate, you know, we didn't have all of the bells and whistles of a PWI, you know, our theater department, you know, we were lacking in so many things in terms of the bells and the whistles, but what we had at the core was so much more. Sometimes, you know, little can become much. And that's what it was. You know, we would tie lights, you know, with a shoestring and some bubble gum and give me this. And we're going, you know, we, we just made it happen. You know what I mean? Without any excuses. And so I think that's the greatest preparation that I have. And I teach my kids all the time. I say the word for today is what? Adjustment. <laughs> you know, for every problem, there is a solution. And I feel like it gave me that. It's a wonderful lesson, obviously, that you passed on to your student about adjustment. And it's so perfect for the next area where I want to go. One of the things that I learned in, in researching for this interview is that you actually auditioned for the game, which is astounding to me because at that point, you, I mean, you were, in my mind, a proven commodity, right? We had just seen you uh, or had been seeing you on the Steve Harvey show. You know, Regina Greer was was that girl on TV, Right. Was there any part of you, even though obviously the game and, you know, as a career sports writer, I, I love the game for a lot of different reasons. But was there any part of you that was somewhat insulted by that, that the fact that they wanted you with your lengthy track record to audition for this? Girl, can I break this down? Break it on down so it forever can be broke. This is a it's such a humbling business. Are you kidding me? Not only did I audition, but the women that were there. You know, from Vanessa Williams to, I mean, Tony Braxton, Jasmine Guy, it, it was like I walked in and I, whoo, immediately I shrunk because of the women that were there auditioning for Tasha Mack, you know, and sometimes when you see the competition, you know, it's like, oh, okay, let's get in here and, you know, make it happen. And that was like, you know, almost 18 years ago. And so these women had careers that, you know, I, I paled in comparison to them. You know what I mean? So absolutely, I had to audition. Yeah, it's it's part of the job. As an actor, you audition. You still have to prove yourself. You're as good as your last gig, you know? So you still have to go into the room. And, you know, what I did on the Steve Harvey show, you know, playing Regina Greer is something totally, it's the total antithesis of what Tasha Mack is. Regina was educated, higher learning, this, that, and the other. And Tasha, what? She didn't even get her high school diploma. And she's a single mama. And she's this, you know? So it's like, it's that double dutch. It's that jump rope. It's that muscle that you still have to, to go through. What I did do that was interesting, and, and I'll give this to anybody that's out there that, you know, is interested in any career. This is just a life lesson. Be kind. Be kind, be kind, be kind. And um, Mara Brockakeel, I was on the Sinbad pilot years ago with Salma Hayek and Layla Rashawn and, you know, Sinbad. And there was a production assistant who was answering phones. And I just had the curiosity and I, you know, talked to everybody. Beautiful young girl. And I was like, so what are you doing just answering these phones around, you know, stage? What you want to do? And she's like, I'm a writer. I am a writer. And I said, okay, absolutely. Yes, you are. And so what are you writing? And we just started the little talk and this and the other. Turns out she was Mara Brockakeel, who created Girlfriends, who created the game, who has done tremendous things in this industry. And uh, she remembered that moment as well as I. And you just, you just never know. So yes, I had to jump through hoops. I auditioned for girlfriends like eight times to a point where it's like, you know what? I'm not going in for girlfriends no more because they won't hire me. And come to find out, she was like, no, I always saw you. 
And even when Tasha Mack came up, that was something that she had in mind for me. But yes, I had to audition and earn it. And it was the longest audition. I mean, sitting around waiting for like, oh my God, waiting almost three hours. Well, uh, you know, I remember the game when it started, it was such a novel concept to people. And as a sports journalist, as I said, like the sports stuff, I was I was definitely going to be judging harshly. Like, are they really going to get in the nitty gritty of what happens? Like, you know, in what is a NFL simulated league and with the character development and much as is the case now, because it's, it's obviously it's on uh, season two of Paramount Plus, is that there is not a topic, whether it be in life or even in professional sports, that the game shies away from. And the dramatic term I thought was so seamless because other shows I don't think could have done that from comedy to, to, to drama. Did you have any concerns when they decided to reboot the game for Paramount? Did you have any concerns that the essence that w- what people loved about the game would be lost? I had concerns. I had fears. I had insecurities. Number one, I had been away from this character for almost, you know, it was like almost a six year hiatus. So how do you step back into the shoes, you know, and it's like, well, well, who is Tasha now? You know, um, because, you know, everything changes in life. You know, I'm not the same Wendy I was six years ago. So who is Tasha now as she has evolved? But I want to say the magnificence of Devon Gregory and his writing and his brilliance of taking these characters that have not only grown, but relocating them to Vegas and putting it almost through the lens and through the eyes of the daughter of Jason Pitts, Brittany Pitts, and seeing it from a new, fresh, fun, funny, and it's familiar, but it's still fresh and different. So I was scared. I was scared as hell because even our first table read, you know, that's where, you know, everybody gets around and, you know, we read it out loud. And I felt like, (laughs) and I tell everybody this too, I felt like I was doing uh, an episode of Good Times and they were doing an episode of The White Lotus, you know, because even the acting styles had changed, you know, everybody was just so like this and they were reading the lines like this. And I'm like, now believe what you gonna do is this video. So what worked six years ago for Tasha, it didn't work for this reimagining of the show. And, you know, the word for today is what? Adjustment. So, you know, you you just really, you got to go with it. And thank God, you know, I go back to my training, you know, and it's like, oh, so this is what it is. But it took a while for everyone to find the ebb and to find the flow and just to get into it. You know, it's production, it's rehearsal. It's like, you know, in sports, you know, you got to practice, you know, practice really makes perfect. It was hard. It was a challenge just because it was uncomfortable initially. You know, I couldn't just step right on back in. I had to just really nuance it and discover who this woman is. Well, I have more questions I definitely want to ask you about the game. And also, I want to ask you about your attachment style. But I got to take a quick break before we get into all of that. Wow, where did you get that from? That is so... Listen, I got my ways. That's all I'm going to say. I got my ways, Wendy. So uh, I'm going to ask you about that and some other stuff about the game. But we're just going to take a quick break. And we'll be back with more with Wendy Raquel Robinson. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage 
all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If you listen to last week's episode featuring Lala Anthony, I told a story about how my husband waged war on some squirrels that were wreaking absolute havoc in our backyard. Well, I have a story to tell or rather an update to tell on how this entire squirrel story is continuing to evolve. To recap, to handle our squirrel problem, my husband at first sprayed the squirrel repellent, which didn't work. He then mixed together some peanut butter and let's just say a cocktail that could result in some harm that didn't work either. They just ate up all the peanut butter and kept it moving. And finally, he got an animal trap, placed some peanut butter inside and voila, we finally got results. We trapped two squirrels, one we let out at a nearby park. The other squirrel, much to the absolute disgust of my husband, I let out in our backyard because it had been raining really hard and the squirrel was going all crazy in the cage and kind of yelping. And well, I just started to feel bad. My husband was livid that I let the squirrel out in our backyard and didn't drive it elsewhere. And he started calling me the Harriet Tubman for squirrels. Now, I didn't think anything of it. But when my husband listened to last week's episode, he took issue with the fact that I mentioned that not so nice squirrel cocktail he put together, the one that may or may not cause harm. So now he's calling me the Henry Hill of squirrels. And in case you don't get that reference right away, Henry Hill is the character Ray Liotta played in Goodfellas. He rose to prominence in the mob and then he snitched on everybody. So my husband was basically calling me a snitch. Unfortunately, I can't really defend myself because sure enough, a few days after the podcast aired, I received an email from PETA. Yep. The People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. A spokesperson reached out and emailed this. Hi, Jamel. We caught your story in this week's episode about the squirrels in your backyard and wanted to thank you for ultimately opting to trap and release the squirrels instead of poisoning them. We're so glad to hear that kindness prevailed as poisons cause animals to endure slow, agonizing deaths accompanied by convulsions, vomiting, internal bleeding, gradual cardiac collapse, and a variety of other painful reactions. It's an awful way to die. We recommend a live and let live approach with squirrels and other wildlife. But if you're determined to keep squirrels away from your property, the best tactic is to take away their food supply, which would mean quickly and regularly cleaning up any fallen fruit from your tree and make the area less attractive to them. The yard guard deterrent is one humane option you might consider. Thank you again for sparing these squirrels. And please let us know if there's any further guidance we can give. So now I'm Takashi 69 and now back to more with Wendy Raquel Robinson. The one thing that is like fascinating to me about about the game, about many, many things, but this to me stands out because I don't think I've ever seen this happen before in, in, in Hollywood. And maybe you have because this is your profession. But the game has now been on three different networks. It's lasted by my math and I'm you know not great at math. It's lasted almost 20 years. What does that resilience say about the show itself? Ooh. I think it goes back to, well, number one, with the, without the fans, uh, we wouldn't even be, you know, um, there's no show that is done with the game has. We are the, the gift that keeps on giving and that little engine that could and can and will and does. I want to say that, you know, over, like you said, 
you know, almost 20 years, we have been able to really reach an audience that uh, is generational, <laughs> you know, because now some people have grown up with the show and now those young people are watching it with their parents and even their grandparents. So it's multi-generational in just how it is. Uh, I, I think that's impactful. I think that we cover topics that, like you said, aren't necessarily football related, but world related, life related, you know, just adulting. Whew, I think it resonates with a lot of people as well. And there's, there's just so much magic in this show. It's really, for me, it's a pinch me kind of moment. It's, it's very humbling to be a part of a project that has done what the show has done. It's epic. You don't see shows do that where they're able to find life on three different networks because the fans have such an attachment to it. Hasn't been one. There hasn't been one. And and I, I also, you know, I liken it akin to, you know, the Law and Order shows, but they've been on the same network. But, you know, they're like 26 years in, you know, Mariska Heart Attack, you know, I, I love her. And I'm like, how, how do you do it? You know, and it's kind of like a soap opera as well. You know, those have been on, you know, for like 50 years, but they've been on the same network. So the only thing that has shifted were the producers. It's, it's really fascinating. And it's kind of like, OK, don't talk about it. I don't want to jinx it, you know, but yeah, girl, three networks in almost 20 years. You know what I mean? We've seen life. We've seen marriages. We've seen divorces. We've seen births. We've seen, you know, so many things, you know, as a cast, you know, and now with this, you know, reincarnation or reimagining, so to speak, it's exciting, you know, to see where things are going to go. And like you said, it's a drama now. It's like, oh my God, I'm doing, you know, wow. The only show I can think of is maybe Bel Air, but that's a total reimagining for a different network. You know, like that it has no relationship to the Fresh Prince. It's not the same cast. Like you, you guys still have cast members who were there at the beginning, you know, and, you, and, and you're the, you're sort of like the, the linchpin of the show Tasha Max character is. So it's, it's totally different. Totally. Yeah. So how do you define that? You know, it's like, you don't, you, I don't even question it. I just, you know, I ride with it and, you know, what a blessing it is to be able to see this character's journey as well as, you know, cause could you always bring something personal to your characters? You know what I mean? And so to be able to add so much of Wendy's life experiences now to Tasha's as well. And, uh, the interpretation of her journey is just, it's amazing, especially this season. This was a, it was a heavy season for me because we, we touch on some health issues and things like that, that were very parallel to my life. So it was like, okay, is art imitating life or is life imitating art? You know, the game plays, uh, it, based off what I read in interviews that you've given previously, the game plays a very interesting role in your personal story because, uh, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but when the game kind of came along, somewhere in that window, uh, you were recovering from a house fire. Is that correct? Girl, you did your research, didn't you? <laughs> Girl. Yeah, it was my first year of marriage and lost my house, lost everything. Even the car in the carport blew up. It was devastating to say the least. But the one thing <laughs> that came through it was uh, in the rebuilding of it all, I had to move back home to South LA where I grew up in the hood and pretty much start all over while my house was being built. In that time, you know, or that season, I should say, 
being back there, the audition came up for Tasha Mack. I'm walking in them shoes, you know, at the grocery store. You know, I'm back to my, you know, yo, it's Wendy from the block. You know what I mean? And it just, it was a seamless, it, it felt like it was just written for me. When I read those sides, I was like, oh, I know this girl. I knew her intrinsically. I knew this woman. And um, it was, it was so easy. It was the easiest audition, you know, and uh, I still had to audition, <laughs> still a lot of competition, but I felt like it was just written for me. The cadences, the references, the sass, the razzmatazz. So, yeah, I was, it was at a hard season, but at the time I was supposed to be where I was to walk in those shoes. You know, she's from Richmond, which is, you know, akin to South Central. So during that period, dealing, you know, with a fire, because like a, a good friend of mine, he he lost a bunch of stuff in all his things in Hurricane Katrina. He essentially lost his his childhood, basically, in, in his parents' home. And yeah, I can't imagine going through that kind of loss. So what did you learn about yourself during that period? Wow. I learned that I am not the stuff that I possess because it was all gone, you know? And the one thing that I was going through everything and like, you know, I, I, oh, whew, child. I remember my mom and I, she came by because, you know, with insurance, you know, they depreciate everything. So we're going through, you know, even the underwear, you got to mark down what was this, that, and the other. It was photographs and pictures that I was looking for, because this is, you know, basically before cell phones were used the way that they're used now. So I lost memories in portraits. And that for me was, that was the hardest thing. So to, to capture the moments and make new memories on purpose, you know, that's, that's where I am now. And to remember those moments. And I'm not materialistic at, at all. I really wasn't before, but now it's like, mm, I don't need all the stuff. You know, to simplify, I do a lot of purging and just keep everything, you know, not minimalistic, but yeah, simplistic. Less is more. How would you describe the season you're in right now, personally and professionally? Oh, wow. I say 23 is for me. Just really getting back to, you know, self-love, self-care. And I want to say it's just, I give so much. That it's like now I want to pour back into myself and to not feel selfish or guilty about it or anything like that. But it's like, if I don't love me and cheer me on, who the hell is? This is that season for me and, and I'm okay with it. You know, I was just on another interview and it's like, so what's next for Wendy? And it's like, Wendy, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm ready to travel. I'm ready to, to love. I'm ready to discover even more about myself. Yeah, to take time just for me. And it's okay. Mm. So you, uh, all right. You just said a, a, a trigger phrase. You said you are ready to love. Now I know you, you're obviously you're divorced. So is marriage something you would do again? <laughs> <laughs> Way to answer that one. <laughs> I would love to be in partnership in the divorce. If I had started the, the marriage, like the divorce, <laughs> You know, in terms of the hard facts, putting everything out there. I mean, it was like, wow, <laughs> damn near everything, you know, was out. And um, if I had gone into the marriage with that, it'd be a total different story. But I'm not I'm not going to say that I'll never get married again. 
but I would love to be in partnership, sincere partnership. How much did your views about love change post-divorce? You know, it's so funny. I'm July 25th. It's like the day of quixotic. (laughs) And, you know, there's erotic, exotic, and then there's quixotic, you know, which is the love of love, you know. And and I I, I do see life sometimes through rose-colored glasses. If anything, I think it amplified for love. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a romantic. I'm a true romantic at heart. I I love love. Shit, I do. I said it. I love love. <laughs> yeah, I do. And I, I just think it amplified it. And it made me believe in the possibility that, you know, it does and can exist. You know, some people say you only get three true loves in your life. And it's like, mm, I disagree. I'm not looking for it. But like I said, the greatest love is, you know, inside of me. It starts with me first. And I think in, in starting there as a, uh, a foundation, it's going to attract everything that I need. I wasn't there before. So uh, before I get you out of here, there's a game that I play with all my guests that appear on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. I give you two choices. It's very easy. You just pick one. But I promise you, this is where the controversy happens. <laughs> I'm just I'm just warning you. Okay. All right. So first up, Karen from Two Can Play That Game or my girl Gwen from A Thin Line Between Love and Hate. <laughs> Karen. Yes, child. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes. Uh, hook Bobby Brown on up. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Got him together. <laughs> But you know what's so funny? She was a sucker for love, too. You know what I mean? She was a sucker for love. Yes. Karen was like, if I got the building from the bottom up, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. But but working with Vivica, Monique, Tamala, you know, and we were just all just, you know, so young and just, you know, really getting started at that time. It was just it was a great set. And Bobby, you know, he's still we still tight as hell to this day, you know, so it doesn't get any better than that. That movie never got the credit it deserved. Because when I tell you, me and my homegirl, Kelly, we used to quote that movie, like, from top to bottom. We, like, wow. that, that was our joint right there. Like, that was Sashay Shantae. Like, that was our whole, like, <laughs> that was our joint right there. So I love to complain, K-Man. That's definitely one that didn't get the credit that it deserved. Now, I know you are a big fan of Leonardo DiCaprio. So I'll ask you. Oh, my God, are you? <laughs> Wolf of Wall Street or The Departed? Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. He was sexy. He was conniving. He was, you know. Oh, my God. You know that? I, I love Leonardo. Love, love, love him. <laughs> and you know what it is? I'm attracted to his gift. He's one of those character actors that can just lose himself in a role. And it's just so inspiring to me. But definitely that Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. I like a smart businessman with savvy. <laughs> from the Beyonce Renaissance album that had us all in the chokehold all of 2022, Pure Honey or Break My Soul? Oh, Pure Honey. That is so funny. <laughs> and Pure Honey is the quiet one. But yeah, you won't break my soul. Yeah, I just quit my job, lost my mind. Or I, I, I can't quit my job. And I, yeah, I'm trying to hold on to my mind. Okay. But Pure Honey. Yeah, I like that. It's one of those, you know, it takes me back to my dance days, my club days. Yeah. Finally. The Mastery of Self or Attached. I know these are both very, uh, these are both two books that are near and dear to you. So which one? Interesting. The Mastery of Self, because that is helping me to understand my attachment styles. 
you know what I mean? And until we understand who we are, <laughs> you know, who I am, yeah, I'll, I'll never um, be able to love or to relate or to even uh, connect in the most authentic and prosperous way. So, yeah, that's what it felt. So what is your attachment style? Ah! You put it out there. You got to know what is your attachment style? Absolutely. You know, what's interesting in my marriage, I had a very secure attachment style. I didn't realize it. You know, I wouldn't, I wasn't worried about, you know, this, that, and the other, but I was dating recently. It was almost an anxious avoidant attachment style where I allowed, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm studying mastery of self. I allowed the projection of someone else to create a sense of, uh, anxiousness, you know, had me wondering, you know, okay, well, am I too much? You know, am I this, am I that, you know? And it's like, whoa, calm down, get control of yourself and your emotions. Yeah. It, I, I'm going to say my attachment style adjust and pivots, you know, master yourself first, Wendy. Yeah. <laughs> master yourself first. Okay. You know yours? I do not know mine um, because when uh, I, in reading and discovering that this was a book that you really liked, it made me curious to read it because I mean, like a lot of people, you read the the five love languages, right? Everybody knows what that. Mm. Yes. And so, um, cause like, uh, like with that one, mine's, uh, acts of service, right? That's my love language, right? Is that, you know, if you go get my oil changed for me and I don't have to, like, I will love you. <laughs> it's the little thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's the little stuff. Things that, yes. If you take something off my plate or make my life easier yeah. in some way, that is like very big with me for sure. But yes, just reading up on what this attachment style book was about, I was like, let me put this in the queue because I'd love to figure out what mine is. Because as you know, from from being married, I'm just in year four of being married and marriage exposes you. Yes, it does. In a good way and a bad way. It exposes yeah. everything that's in you underneath the vulnerabilities, all of that. And as someone who has always struggled in the area of expressing vulnerability, it's been very eye opening. So helping to learn my attachment style, I feel like would be very, um, a very key communicative part, you know, to that could assist my marriage. So I'm on it. I downloaded the book, so I'm good. And it helps you understand yourself as well as your partner. Correct. My therapist referred that to me. Yeah. I, so just, just understanding, yeah, who I am and you know, what I seek in a partner. Ah, okay. All right. I cannot wait to read this book. Cause I'm Honey, I cheat. Honey, I put my books on audio and just <laughs> listen. It's it's the same, you know. As somebody who has a memoir, it's the same, same. because as someone who whose whose book is out now, I can tell you it all counts the same. Like it's like it, it all does. I count it all joy. Yes, yes correct. <laughs> well, um, Wendy, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me. It has just been such a pleasure to watch your outstanding work throughout the years and um, learning about your school and your organization and what you're pouring into these young people who want to be you. That's very inspiring for a lot of people. So thank you for spending this time with me and much success with everything you have going on. But what you said, 23 is, is about you. I say 23 is for me. Yes, I appreciate you. Thank you. Well, Wendy is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Fuck it, I'm bothered. 
You may have seen a bunch of headlines last week that claimed the transgender community was upset about Aretha Franklin's song, Natural Woman. But there was one big problem with those headlines. They were all based on a fucking lie. And fuck it, I'm bothered. A post on Facebook, which was shared hundreds and hundreds of times, showed a screenshot of an Instagram post that says Aretha Franklin's 1968 song, A Natural Woman, deemed offensive by trans community. The origin story of this truly fake outrage starts with a group called the Transcultural Mindfulness Alliance. They tweeted, Aretha Franklin's 1968 song, Natural Woman, perpetuates multiple harmful anti-trans stereotypes. There is no such thing as a, quote, natural woman. This song has helped inspire acts of harm against transgender women. TCMA is requesting it is removed from Apple and Spotify. The story was everywhere. And you can already guess what most of the comments said. It was a whole lot of transphobia and a whole lot of can you please drink a warm glass of shut the fuck up. People got all wound up. And then the punchline. It was a parody and satire account that claims to be operated by two trans people. This was a great lesson in actual transphobia and absolutely terrible journalism. There is this strong sentiment that the trans and queer community overall complained too damn much. And even though there were numerous signs that this Aretha Franklin outrage was indeed fake, the reason so many people lost it is because a lot of people in general, not everybody, don't like the fact that they don't get to openly disrespect, ridicule, denigrate the people in the trans community like many people have been accustomed to doing their entire lives. Now, it is not my place to tell trans people what they should and shouldn't be upset about. And if it seems like this community is super sensitive, well, can you blame them? Think about how we openly referred to this community 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. Think about the jokes, the depictions that were so mainstream about this community for most of our lives. Think about how in present day there is legislation that's being passed all over the country that targets their community, especially trans youth, which has higher rates of depression and suicide than the rest of the population. Can't say I blame them for being upset and triggered a lot of times because for years they've always been the butt of the jokes. But with that being said, if you thought about the lyrics of Natural Woman, that would have been the first indication that this math wasn't quite mathing. Here are the lyrics. Looking out on the morning rain, I used to feel so uninspired. And when I knew I had to face another day, Lord, it made me feel so tired. Before the day I met you, life was so unkind. But you're the key to my peace of mind because you make me feel you make me feel you make me feel like a natural woman. The song is about feeling. Nowhere does it mention anatomy. But putting that aside, this was a terrible look for my profession. Right there on the Twitter bio where this first complaint came from, it says it's satirical. It says this organization was created this month. So this wasn't some established mainstream organization that had been around for years. It also says it was an organization founded in Norway. So you, as in the media, took an unknown supposedly trans organization from a country with less than a million people and turned that into trans community finds Aretha Franklin's natural woman offensive. Why does the news media consistently take minority opinions because they're loud and run with false narratives and make it seem like it's a majority opinion? The headline should have been group no one has ever heard of has problem with classic song that everybody universally loves. I know I got to make that shorter. 
It reminds me of a similar fake outrage story last week involving Beyonce, who performed in Dubai for $24 million. Lord Jesus, I see what you have done for other people, and I pray you do that for me. Anyway, I saw numerous headlines that said the gay community has a problem with Beyonce for performing in Dubai because homosexuality is illegal in Dubai, and Beyonce's Renaissance album is a tribute to the queer community. I understand that she did not do songs from that album in Dubai. I saw so many social media posts calling people out for being fake upset because as many people continue to note, are y'all going to keep that same energy when she performs in America where she'll be in states that have anti-abortion laws, anti-trans laws, or anti-anything progressive? The problem is that nobody here in America is saying Beyonce is a hypocrite for performing in Dubai. That criticism came from a British advocacy group. One group. One group is not a y'all. It's not a majority opinion. So people are all upset about a minority opinion from a group that none of them had heard of. Some shit just doesn't deserve the oxygen. Sometimes the streets is saying shit, but a lot of times the streets is just a couple tweets or somebody being loud and wrong. Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the Friday. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Uh, my word, how I live, you don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, the choice is yours, revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. On behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music, you can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of seven, five, and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word. How I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live, you don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it.